Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Friday, 25th of June. It's Martin here from the podcast team, and I'm here to introduce to you today this podcast with a difference. A very, very special guest is John Turner. And if you're wondering, oh, who's that? Let me explain. Our chief editor of Autosport is Kevin Turner. Last Sunday was Father's Day. Yeah, you've worked it out already. John is Kevin's dad, a lifelong fan of motorsport. And like many of us, it was our mums and dads that probably got us first interested in following motorsport when we were growing up. Certainly the case in Kevin's childhood. And so, as they sat down last Sunday afternoon for a beer on Father's Day, a rare chance after the year and a bit that we've had to get together in person, Kevin said, look, I've got the microphones that I use for the podcast. Let me hit record and see what happens. <laughs> recording dads for podcasts they're both dads yeah anything could happen enjoy this one kevin and his dad john for the last year and a half i've had to do podcasts remotely over uh, various different apps rather than uh, in person but i'm very pleased to say that my special guest today is sat with me actually in the room uh, he's been following motorsport for over half a century done a little bit of competition himself is involved with race organization and uh, is unofficially the second audible archive uh whenever we need uh we need some magazines or old books and reference material uh it's john turner also known as my dad so what a uh, mistake at omega yeah <laughs> so um welcome to the Allsport podcast thank you so the, one of the reasons we're doing this is it's it's Father's Day, so it seemed an appropriate time to try something a little bit different. And also, during the recent uh, Spanish Grand Prix, Dad sent me a message, which was something along the lines of, Lewis Hamilton is the most complete driver since Jackie Stewart, <laughs> which I thought was quite an interesting discussion point. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of talk over the last year, 18 months, as Lewis Hamilton has been smashing various F1 records about where he really slots in. Uh, to the greatest racing driver debate. So what is it about Lewis, Dad, that you reckon, having seen everyone basically from, from Sterling Moss upwards, that makes you think that, that he's more complete? Because obviously a lot of drivers between Stewart and Hamilton, most obviously Alain Prostet and Senna Mark Schumacher, what, what impresses you so much about him? Well, I think he's developed uh, over the years in a linear way. And the particular thing I like about Lewis Hamilton is the fact that I think he's every bit of good as Senna and Schumacher were, but he has that extra bit for me, which means his on-track ethics are far better than theirs. And uh, although he fights hard, he in no way would try to cheat on the track. And um, 
he's he's just a, a great battler and a great overtaker and he knows what he's doing and i think he's also learnt and matured uh over um a long period probably learning from the likes of fernando and jensen um so that he is now probably the most complete racing driver i've certainly come across during my lifetime yeah i think that's a very good point about when we come to talking about the legacy uh, that Lewis Hamilton uh, will leave to Formula One, apart from all the stuff that he's done off track with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it will be uh, along with Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, and probably Sebastian Vettel. You would have to throw in as well for his efforts at Red Bull of moving back towards a hard but fair ethic and away from the sort of the you know the Schumacher crashes that we saw at Jerez and Adelaide, the, the parking the car at Monaco, some of Senna's moves. You know, it feels like the win at all costs thing has been moved back slightly, and I think um, F1. Uh, if one is 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 all the better for it, and of course the other thing that I find interesting about this is that he keeps on getting better. Surprising, really, because you'd think that he'd already reached the peak of uh, his ability, but he does seem to continue to find improvements. Although, of course, there was a recent failure, wasn't there, uh, when he threw the race away? But that is the exception rather than the rule, and I think probably simply confirms that he's actually a human being. Well, that's the mistake at Baku, of course, where he accidentally yes. clipped the uh, clipped the button on the wheel to throw the brake bias to the front. Um, but even then, actually, that race was another one that he, he almost had a chance of winning when he shouldn't have done. You know, the Red Bulls were quicker, um, and that was his one chance uh, chance to take. And he, he, on this occasion, he wasn't able able to do that. But I do wonder, actually, whether the intensity of the battle between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton this year will both bring out the best of the two of them and also a few more mistakes because they're obviously right on the limit. And these cars, to me, look like they're quite difficult to quite difficult to drive as well. You know, people talk about people are looking back with the sort of rose tinted spectacles, say the modern cars are too easy to drive. But I don't really think uh, I think that's the case. I think these cars are so complex. Um, I don't think you can really compare them with the old uh, days. So comparisons are always very difficult to make between generations. But I do think Lewis is probably the best there has been um I, i'm a great fan of jackie stewart as well and i think probably uh there are those that would put jimmy clark and others above him but um i think stewart probably was of his time the most complete driver and i just think lewis has taken that forward i mean there's been some great drivers between of course but uh, i just feel that um, and I, I'm a convert, really, because I wasn't a huge fan initially. This guy's got pretty much everything. And I think this year he will uh, make perhaps a few more mistakes. But And it's great that Verstappen is there to provide a, a real challenge to him. And, of course, the thing about this year is that he doesn't have that car advantage that you know everyone bangs on about from time to time. And um, yet he's still proving what a great racer he is. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't really have a weakness. He says he's quick in the wet, he's good at racecraft, he's good at looking after the tyres. Um, he doesn't really give points away very often across the season. I mean, I, I think that argument about being in the best car, which does come up quite a lot, is, is fatuous really for a couple of reasons. One is the great drivers invariably find themselves in the best cars because... Yeah, that's what happens. Do, the yeah. top teams want top drivers, and the other, yeah, we've seen plenty of time. You know, he's won uh, at the time of recording. He's won ninety-eight Grand Prix, and there are plenty of examples. And I've gone through each and every one for a piece that will run when he hits the hundred. Um, there are plenty of examples within those ninety-eight of, of races that he shouldn't have won. I think the twenty eighteen F one season was one really where either a Ferrari driver or a Mercedes driver could have won it. Uh, and he actually won it quite comfortably with some some brilliant drives and some Vettel errors. So I think that one's been put to bed really already. But I think it would only add to add to his already impressive CV if he can go toe to toe with the next great driver coming along or one of them in a car that perhaps isn't quite uh, quite there. Yes, I think that could sort of seal his greatness, if you like. Um, I think that Lewis probably um, the final part of the jigsaw puzzle was probably when he got beaten um to the championship by rosberg i think that was the final piece that's now made him what he is and he continues to improve yeah i completely agree with that i think um since probably the middle of 2017 i think he also suits these bigger faster cars they were with a fragile pirellis and those skinny cars that by and large weren't very attractive to look at either um uh, probably wasn't at his best, but I think the, the sting of defeat with with Rosberg and then the new cars, he's been absolutely fantastic since then. The only reason I personally don't put him at number one 
as I wrote a piece at the end of last year for the 70th anniversary of Autosport comparing all the great drivers in a Formula 1 context I think the greatest racing driver of all time is a slightly different argument for perhaps another day but um, where we could get to talk about Sterling Moss uh, a lot more but the reason I put him behind Stewart was that for me Jackie Stewart didn't have that kind of wobble in that middle of his career that, that Lewis had at McLaren alongside Jensen Button where you know he had far too many races where uh, he tripped over Felipe Massa and Button was well down the road um, you know Stewart was just impressive I think all the way through whereas Hamilton has built himself into probably the best driver we've seen yeah and not only that of course uh, Hamilton hasn't completed his career yet and maybe we shouldn't make uh, a, t- a complete assessment until he has and we just don't know how long he's going on for and I think this um, difficulty if that's the right word he had with Jensen maybe because we underestimate what Button was capable of um, but of course he didn't have the consistency of pace um, or the stamina I guess that uh, Hamilton's got no I think um, I think well I remember I think probably saying to you when Jensen won the world champion signed for McLaren that that was a, a really going into the sort of lion's den really Lewis's team you know Hamilton had, had sort of seen off Alonso or Alonso had left the team little Paul Jensen they could be in trouble here but actually he won a race before Lewis did in 2010 and in 2011 he led the attack so I think probably Lewis did learn from both Jensen and then later the 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 fights alongside Nico Rosberg. I think he also probably learnt something from uh, Alonso in that uh, rather contentious year they had together. And I think there's now a lot of respect between the two um, drivers. But I think just that Hamilton's just taken everything on further. Um, And I just don't know where the end will be. But uh, I'm normally not a great fan of statistics proving things because, you know, until uh, Hamilton passed them, uh, Schumacher would be regarded statistically as the greatest driver and a lot of fans still would say that but I think he was still flawed and I just don't really see that in Hamilton Now it would be unfair for us and for all sport readers and listeners to just talk about F1 because our interests go well well beyond that so um, I thought we'd perhaps uh, go back a little bit and, and first talk about our first motorsport memories so uh, can you recall some of the first events you went to or, or, or saw, some, something that stands out to you? And then we'll get to mine, because obviously you took me to my first motorsport event. Well, the first meeting I seem to remember going to, I think, was the Aston Martin Owners Club St. John Horsfall meeting. I think it was in 66. And I think I was probably um, the... It was probably the moment when I thought, yeah, I'm going to go on looking at this for for the rest of my days, and I indeed I have. Of course, I'd been watching um, black and white uh, programs on the television, remembering Moss beating Brabham when Moss had run out of brakes and there, and had been passed by Brabham. I think possibly at Alton Park, can't remember, um, and. Uh, Moss simply decided not to break in the final bend and drove around the outside of Brabham to take a rather unexpected win. And, and I, I'm pretty certain I also remember the debut of the uh, E-Type Jaguar and possibly even the DB4 GT. So I'm, I'm sort of going back quite a long way. Uh, um, but I've always been interested in cars and motor racing and Moss was always my hero uh, and remains to this day. And certainly, although... There's plenty of argument that would say he isn't the greatest F1 driver. I certainly think he's the greatest all-rounder, and I'd be hard-pushed to be persuaded that anyone else matched him now or then. No, I think in terms of the the gap that he had over his peers, it was probably, we talked about this before actually in the the Sterling Moss podcast we did um, a couple of years ago, he probably had a bigger margin over the opposition than any other driver, with the possible exception of... Marcus Schumacher pre-Mika Hakkinen getting into his stride. I think there was quite a big gap between him and the rest yeah. sort of in the mid to late uh, mid to late 90s. Um, well, my first motorsport memory, which I have written about in the, in the magazine, I've got vague recollections actually of going to an AMOC meeting at Silverstone. <laughs> David Ellis, big yellow V8 monster versus, I think, a Lola sports prototype. But the piece that I wrote about in the magazine and that probably is 
one of the single most important events that I went to um, was the 1988. It was actually called the Autosport 1000 Kilometers at Silverstone. So that's a nice little little link there. The, yeah, the Group C race. Do you, do you remember the Jaguar versus Sauber Mercedes? Uh, I mean, they were just fantastic cars, weren't they? Well, you you may need to correct me here, but was this the time that uh, Thackwell was in the Kuros Mercedes, or was that a, a year earlier? That was the year before, okay. um, which we didn't go to, but obviously we've seen, we saw footage of. But no, yeah. this is when they were in the... Uh, uh, AEG kind of black or very dark blue. Uh, I've, I've actually got a model car of it, but I don't think it's quite here. So it was, it was Jean-Louis Schlesser yeah. in the, leading the South Merck charge against Martin Brundle and, and Eddie Cheever in the TWR yeah. XJR nines. They would have been. Um, now at the time, I don't know whether this was obvious as as, uh, as a kid standing there. Uh, obviously, I wanted the Jaguars to win because they were the British cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, with hindsight, I now really like those Sabres because those v- twin-turbo V8s sound fantastic. They did indeed. Uh, but they had, uh, just just for, I mean, people may well have been there who were listening, but the, the race was quite good until Martin Brundle climbed aboard the lead XJR9 and he then ruined the race by disappearing down the road. Uh, he was he was kind of the star turn that day, really, and, and, and beat the beat the Sabres in what was a fantastic battle all season. I think it was five all in the end. Uh, Jaguar just just nicked it, and of course won Le Mans twenty four hours when Sauber uh, had to uh, had to pull out from Le Mans after tyre failures. And um, but the other things I remember about that day is I think I probably bought my first model car, which I think was a Jaguar D type, which started a whole. You've got I, a very I, good collection of cars. I actually. think it may also have been the occasion. This is a very personal note when you disappeared briefly into the crowd, and uh, I, I had panic, which any parent would have. So I, I think I remember that probably more than the race because you do worry about these things. I do remember that, actually. I do remember getting lost. It was, I think it was only a couple of minutes, but it feels... Yeah. I think for both parties, it feels a lot longer. I was six at the time, so I remember yeah. uh, I remember the sort of legs of adults that seemed like trees and getting very panicky, mm. but it was literally for, for a few a few moments. Mm. But yeah, that, I do remember that as well. Um, but we'll stick with sports cars because I think it's fair to say that we're kind of sports car fans, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we obviously followed Formula 1 and we agree that Formula 1 is the pinnacle but in terms of watching a car go, I always like a car with a roof uh, or at the very least enclosed wheels yeah well I'm a great yeah. GT fan of course and um, I sort of remember you know things like the DB4 GT Zagato Ferrari GTO Shelby Daytona Cobras I mean fantastic machines and the E-types of course and um, they were sort of superseded by the mid-engine cars so I, I've got a lot to personally thank Dodge for or Chrysler, I never know which to say, for bringing the Viper out because I think that kicked off a sort of repeat of these wonderful front-engine, rear-wheel drive GT cars that have gone on to entertain us um, in more recent years. It was a fantastic uh, era of, well, initially GT2, of course, which then, as often happens with GT racing, becomes the top class GT1. And we had yeah, the Aston Martin DBR9, the Chevrolet Corvette, Ferrari 550 and 575. Um, and then, of course, it got a bit silly because Maserati were allowed in with the, the MC12, which James Newbold is doing a piece on for later in the year. Very interesting story behind that car. But I remember at the time being quite irritated that it was in the race because it was a mid-engine supercar built to regs that never existed. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm sort of opening myself up to criticism here, Dad, because... Uh, I recently, or actually last year, did a best-looking Le Mans cars list, which obviously is very subjective. Uh, And my top three, I wanted to run this by you. Uh, So my top three, I won't go through the whole list. It's uh, on allsport.com if anyone fancies to to have a look at it. But number three was the Porsche 917. Second was the Aston Martin DBR1. Hmm. And first was the Ferrari 330p4, which actually is the least successful of those three in terms of uh, Le Mans efforts. But what do you reckon? Is that... Anything I've anything I've missed there is that the right order? Uh, well, I'm not sure about the right order. Although it, it would be very difficult not to put the P4 at the top of anyone's list of beautiful Le Mans type cars. Um, I have a particular, obviously, interest in Aston Martin, so I agree with the view on DBR1. Although I still think their Project 214, 215 cars were pretty special looking cars and it's just unfortunate Aston Martin never had the funds to develop them because I think they would have been a 
quite a good force in GT racing at that time. But of course, they all went over to mid-engined anyway by that time. Um, 917, well, I don't know whether it's the best looking or one of the best looking. I just think it's a phenomenal piece of kit, basically. Um, I, I'm not even sure I know um, how many of these cars that come to mind were raced at Le Mans. For example, did the Chevron B16 race at Le Mans? Because yes. I think that's yeah. a stunningly attractive uh, uh, motor car, even though obviously small beer compared with these big engine cars we've been talking about. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be. Uh, doesn't always have to be the the cars up front. Although you, I think you naturally think of the cars that tend to tend to run at the front normally. I mean, another car that I put into the list was the two point nine liter Alfa Romeo eight C uh, coupe from nineteen thirty eight, which is one off. Absolutely, my favourite pre war car. Um, absolutely fantastic car, which I think probably would have been competitive at Le Mans until the early fifties, maybe, and certainly until the C type came out. Um, yeah, and what a shame they didn't build more of those. Yeah, that was one of the uh, another list that I did was top ten Le Mans failures or, or late failures, and that for me was really high up because that car was, I think off the top of my head, something like a hundred miles in the lead when it had its tire blowout. Car capable of doing one hundred and fifty miles an hour down the Molson in nineteen thirty eight. Uh, and actually, if you look at pictures of it, it's not hard to think of it as a as a post war car. Really dropped into the to the pre war race. Actually, fantastic uh, piece of kit. But when we're talking about um, sort of cool sports cars, a car that didn't race at Le Mans, although did appear. And this takes us back to our uh, another Silverstone memory of ours. Three years later, um, one of my personal favourites, uh, the XGR fourteen Jaguar. Now, I've had the good fortune to um, speak to Derek Warwick. Um, many times about that car and um, David Brabham as well both of whom put it in their top three cars that they ever drove you know Group C cars they were fantastic but they were quite big and heavy uh, cars and the SGR 14 kind of brought an F1 attitude Ross Braun car of course um, massive great wing on the back actually a bit too big they always struggled to balance it with front end grip um, but we saw that at Silverstone 1991 which is very early in the season only round three they'd blown everyone away in Japan opening round but had problems and lost to the Peugeots they then finished one at two at Monza having set midfield F1 lap times uh, and we then saw them at uh, at Silverstone what an absolutely stunning motor car and it uh, moved the performance envelope right forward for all the competitors and they took they have to say they did catch up pretty quickly but for a few races they were absolutely exceptional and I think what three or four seconds of lap quicker than the other cars just something about that that car which um i don't know makes me put it in the bracket of some of the earlier cars that i love but yes it would be my probably my favorite um racing jaguar uh although i guess a long nose d-type would figure pretty highly too uh, yeah that would be a that would be a good one up right up there as well i mean that i also like the livery i expect most people would think of the the kind of the white purple and yellow from the uh, the v12 cars just before as being the classic twr livery but i actually like the purple more i thought that was quite cool yeah stunning livery really um wouldn't be appropriate now of course but uh, no fantastic. good point <laughs> that is a good point no and in, in that race um although the lead there was quite a story to that because terry farby uh, led the race early on um, while Martin Brundle in the other car which had a problem had to charge back through the field in what he later picked as his race of my life which tells you a lot given the number of sports car races and F1 races he did and in fact he credits that drive as, as what got him back into F1 with Benetton the following year uh, And but Derek Warwick was sharing that car with Farby and he said to Tom Walkinshaw on the grid he was supposed to be sharing the Brundle car when the Brundle car hit trouble Walkinshaw switched him uh, we obviously didn't know this at the time. This is only uh, only with hindsight. Um, but uh, Warwick was, was switched that car and said, are you sure this is within the rules? And Tom said, just drive the car, probably less diplomatically than that. And uh, at the end of the race, Derek didn't get the points of the win. And he lost the championship to Terry Farby by a smaller margin than the number of points that he would have should have got that day, even if he'd stayed in the Brundle car and finished third with, with Martin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Derek was robbed of that one, but fortunately he did win it with Peugeot the following uh, the, the following year, um, were you at Silverstone Classic when Nicholas Manassian drove? I was one as well. Um, was that 2013? Yeah, it was 13 or 14. I think it was 13. Yeah, yeah 13 or 14. Um, you know, these historic races are very good, of course, but they don't obviously have the top drivers of the day in them normally, and um, you don't 
really get to see quite how quick they are. But Manassian that day was still a current, uh, possibly still is, I'm a bit out of touch, um, top driver. And he just uh, drove this thing as it should be and literally disappeared down the road. And, you know, we never really, or the rest of the field ever saw him again, really, didn't they? And I think he broke the um, uh, historic, uh, Silverstone GP record there and I don't think it's been beaten since No it's not been beaten by any subsequent F1 historic F1 races and of course now they're no longer using the rapid well call it chicane but the, the fast left right sweep at uh, club they have to use the, the, the Formula 1 uh, tighter chicane now so I suspect that that could be a record that's held for all time Yes and didn't uh, that include br- the bridge um, No that was all, I think that was after the Oh, actually, I'm not sure now. Oh, now you might have to check that one. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Um, But But, I was going to say, what a sad thing that is, that the bridge section's disappeared because that was always a fantastic part of that. Oh, I think uh, there's a separate piece or podcast on the great lost corners of motorsport, and I would say bridge at Silverstone is definitely one, especially in the pre-Abbey Chicane days. Uh, I'm thinking Nigel Mansell, Williams FW14B, flat through yeah. on his on his qualifying lap where he was whatever it was two yeah. seconds quicker than Ricardo Patrese yeah. in the sister car and about three seconds quicker than anyone else including Ayrton Senna um, we've gone off on a fantastic tangent there what were we talking about oh yes the Manassian story I just wanted to come back to that because I was standing on the wing with Jonathan Gill who's a very helpful promoter media person at Silverstone Classic and he said to me oh, I hope uh, Manassian doesn't just clear off into the distance and makes a race of it <laughs> and I said oh, I hope the absolute opposite I've come here to watch a pro driver drive a proper car yeah, properly uh, and that's what he did fortunately he did and when he got out he said it's good practice for the MP2 car I'm driving only this is faster yes a 20 year old car <laughs> so um, yeah next year 14 a big um, big fan of that um, but it's not all about the big stuff and the fast stuff and we've probably gone to more club racing events together than anything else very accessible if you don't go to club race meetings then you should give it give it a try you can get around and see an awful lot more than you would normally a, a big event and of course it, it'll be cheaper to go to this is of course when everything's opened up when uh, all the lockdown uh, completely ends um, so what do you now you could you had to take me to many uh, races uh, first of all we just went along as fans but then later on when I started doing freelance reporting yeah. for Autosport and one of my ways of getting my foot in the door was to be able to go anywhere at the last minute I'd used uh, a couple of times I got a phone call going, can you get to Pembury on Thursday and of course when I said yes what I really meant <laughs> was yes my dad can drive me yeah. to these events so how annoying was that <laughs> uh, not, not annoying at all really because i enjoyed the motor racing anyway did we ever get to Pembry? no actually Pembry was one i didn't do until i joined the mags so that's a, oh, bad, okay. a bad example but yeah we but, did yeah, do I quite mean, a few other ones yeah, we've been up to um cadwell and down to lydon um obviously silverstone rockingham not my most favorite venues but and stetterton which i think is undervalued um mallory Alton Park, what a fabulous circuit, but sadly not easy to get to. And a lot of uh, the people that race um, with the club that I'm involved in seem to be reluctant to drive across there because it's five hours to, 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 to drive just to do 20 minutes practice and a half an hour race. But yes, we went all over the place and uh, I have very good memories of those, um, whether or not it was a moment's notice or not. And we usually had a good car to drive in, even if it was old. That's true, yeah, I was fortunate to uh, drive around or be driven around in various sort of interesting cars and very occasionally later on when I was a bit older to actually borrow the odd car. So yeah, thank you very much officially uh, to Dad for for (laughs) taking me to those events and sorry to all of those that means that you've now had to put up with me on the magazine for a decade and a half and listen to my witterings on various various podcasts. But just thinking about some of the memories that stand out from those club races, I remember... Uh, I don't know where all the cars are now, are now. those sort of mod sports DB4s. Uh, they, were, they were fantastic to watch and little TVR, well, say little, I mean, small, diminutive, but uh, with massive rocket, engines. Rocket TVRs, That's yeah. right. Um, yeah. uh, Joe Ward, I think, had a yellow uh, yes. one. I remember the first time you saw one of the TVR griffs and um, I think it was at Brands. And, that rings uh, a bell, yeah. And uh, I think you immediately termed it the pocket rocket and i think that's an absolute um accurate description of this uh, the the old griff but um obviously as an aston martin fan and i have been ever all my life 
Um, I love the DB4 mods, mod sports cars as well. And uh, I think the reason that they've moved on is because uh, the cars are worth so much now that it makes more sense financially to return them to more of a sort of road trim. We've probably seen the best of those. Interestingly enough, I had a very quick chat with Pete Foster um, oh, yeah. last weekend and, uh, you know, sort of reminisced briefly about it. And I, I certainly love the car he drove. It wasn't necessarily the quickest because they were Ed Sharp and uh, Jerry Marshall and uh, people like that in some very quick cars. But that has a particular significance, the car that uh, Pete Foster uh, ran. So it was good to bump into him. Yeah, that, that was the one with the green with the yellow sort of nose band, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, little yellow. Yeah, I remember that. Band. Yeah. He was usually kind of in that third, fourth, fifth position normally, sort yeah. of quit, but not quite up there with I, with people like Jerry. I think though, on on the history of the car, it's probably the longest campaign DB4, and probably with the most result, good results on record. Mm. So yeah. Well, actually, just to make the point about the the value of the cars and having them in different spec, I, I spent. Uh, Oh, when was it? The 2019 Goodwood Revival with uh, Simon Hadfield, Darren Turner and Wolfgang Friedrichs with the DB4 GT they running in the Kinrara. And that actually had a background of being at one point in its life a mod sports car, hmm. uh, which was obviously now you know a pre-66 or pre-63 spec car, whether you're talking E-types, Astons, Ferraris, are worth more than than the kind of mod sports sort of club specials that, that we yeah, enjoyed in the 80s and 90s. So we don't really see them. But the other thing we don't see enough of anymore, I don't think, something I really enjoyed, even though the racing sometimes wasn't very good, um, was what we used to call the Intermark uh, with the big Marsh Plant V8s, Richard Chamberlain's 935, which has burnt to a crisp and re been rebuilt, I think, at least once. And he's currently, I think, competing in GT Cup and now looks like a sort of modern version of the whale tail, maybe a fantastic car, but that in its previous life looked a bit more like a standard 935 if such a thing exists. Mm. There are some big E-types. Um, I guess those cars now are really too expensive. You'd be better off going and buying a GT3 car off the shelf. But that was one of the things I really enjoyed about club motorsport was the kind of random one-off or two-off cars that you could see. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's almost anything goes, wasn't it? Uh, there was no... I mean, there were regs, obviously, that governed them, but they were allowed to develop in a way which made them extremely quick and ex a, a great spectacle to watch. So, yeah, some really good cars. And, of course, they did the same, didn't they, with um, the silhouette cars and saloon, you know, silhouette saloons and, you know, similar. There were similar sort of developments in, in various areas of motorsport then and, you know, good times, really. Yeah, I guess the closer you get to that now is the Classic Sports Car Club has its sort of mod sport super saloons. Uh, I don't want to call it recreation, but it's because some of those cars are from periods and some of them are kind of more recent builds, but that's probably the closest thing we've uh, we've got to it now. I do remember one of my less spectacular moments uh, on the magazine was when uh, Amox was relaunched Intermark, which actually became something else, and they wanted these high-end cars to have their own place. I think they called it Super GT. Uh and this was probably, oh, I don't know, a good 10 years ago, probably a bit more when I was on the national desk. And I got very excited by the prospect of, I think there was an AC428 uh, that had been built up. Andy Shepard's uh, car, that's right. he, um, which I believe he still has. And it, I, I happen to know from Andy how much that cost to develop. And it's pretty eye-watering for those times. And... Uh, I think it just sits quietly in his garage now because there's nowhere to race it. Yeah, it's such a shame. And the, the, I remember going to Thruxton um, for, for, I don't know if it's the first one, or one of the early sort of Super GT races, and there were four cars, of which I think only two of them f were running here. I think the Rabbit on the track finished third. I remember sitting at the Rabbit machine that came to. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was unfortunate, and that was one I called wrong because I just really wanted it to be a success. But it, I think that you sort of hit the nail on the head there. It's the, the cost of the cars. And now, you know, GT3 being such a successful category around around the globe, if you want a similar performance of car, you can go and buy a you know, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Porsche, Aston Martin, you, know, you name it, and you'll be able to get support if you need it from the factory. Um, you don't have to solve individual problems from that one chassis you've built. So no. completely understand from a, uh, an owner's point of view why you would go down that yeah, route. And they're actually great cars, aren't they? Um, I, I suppose the only thing I have, being an oldie, I, I, all this performance equalising, I think, is you know i suppose a necessary thing to keep the racing even but i always loved it when a, a manufacturer would st steal a march on another one and the others would then have to catch up and you know you, you 
but this is a long time ago and i know this is, is financially impossible to support such a, an approach to motor racing now but uh, so but i think the gt racing is great i mean i think the gt1s were fantastic and of course it won't come as any surprise um to learn that my favorite modern gt car is the dbr9 um which i still think is a stunning car and i, I think darren turner i believe has uh, said it, it, it what a fantastic piece of kit it was but then he would as a works driver i guess but yeah that's uh, that would be my favorite modern gt car but they're all fantastic things the corvette is superb of course um and i still prefer all these front engine rear wheel drive cars to the mid-engine so i'm sorry for all those fans of modern machinery but you know the engine's in the front the drive should be at the back and that's for me is where it should be I'm quite happy with prototypes with the engine in the middle, though. Yes, yeah, different matter. Of course, there's, I think it's necessary when you're moving forward and trying to get the best performance um, out of a vehicle that you, you have to take the modern approach to things. And I, I guess that mid-engine is, and has been really since the 60s, the best way forward. But you just can't get away from the fact that front engines, big front engines and rear-wheel drive is where it should be for me yeah i think um i, I think a lot of purists would uh, would agree with that actually I, the i remember being at le mans one year uh, when you could go down into the bits uh, as a journalist with your overalls on and um the corvettes are actually a danger not because of when they came in but they were so loud when they went apart. i mean they really shook the ground that the turbo diesels the peugeots and the audis which were much quieter if they happened to be coming in for a pit stop the same time as the corvettes were thundering by you couldn't hear them coming and uh, there was one occasion where one of the Peugeot pit stops, the, uh, the the front dive plane very nearly chopped my ankles off because uh, I was standing in a stupid place and hadn't seen it coming. And if you're in the middle of a 24-hour race, and remember, during the Audi Peugeot years, the race win at the end of 24 hours was sometimes measured in seconds. You're not going to stop for an idiotic journey standing in the way. You're just going to plough through them, basically. So, um, yeah, Corvette almost got me in time. I'm blaming the Corvette, which is Actually, completely unreasonable. It's quite interesting, uh, talking about the sounds... Uh, of those cars because um, I've only ever been to Le Mans twice for various reasons but I did go in 2007 with my neighbour Ian and uh, we camped out near the circuit usually we're kept awake by fellow campers but on the uh, Saturday night when the race was in full flow there were only two cars we could hear going round and they were in, in a huge battle which lasted to the end of the race and of course it was the sound we could hear was the Corvette grumbling loud car and the higher pitched V12 scream of the DB, DBR9s. And it just, I fell asleep. It's the first and only night in that four night sequence. I actually fell asleep listening to what to me was music. So, um, yeah, fantastic cars. Fantastic cars. Yeah, it's funny how you, your brain can get used to racing engines going past. It's the random sounds of spectators that, that catch you out. And I've, well, I think you've seen me sleep behind press rooms in the back of road cars. <laughs> Especially when um, some mad uh, gentleman with a quad bike practically run through your tent at <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. I prefer to listen to the cars going round. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the joys of, uh, the joys of sports car uh, sports car following there. It's not just going along uh, and, well, taking me to events and going to events, but you're involved um, in race organising now, which has sort of come along fairly fairly late, basically in retirement. So do you want to tell us a few things about Fiscar? Because it's, it's not got the highest profile. No, it has a very low profile. And I think we're pretty happy with that because it's, uh, you know, low-key racing, but it enables people with 50s sports cars um to to race amongst their fellow racers um and uh it's been going for about 10 years now and i was involved from fairly early on um we've obviously added the odd car here and there to the um eligible cars but ostensibly they are 1948 to 1962 uh production sports cars doesn't have to be mass product mass produced cars it could be limited production cars and on the whole we get some pretty decent grids although at the moment we're currently uh, experimenting to see if we can run with one or two other clubs um we've done this in the past not always worked so what we'd like to do is to run 
these cars at traditional events like the VSC Spring Start and the uh, Bentley Drivers Club and we have a wonderful meeting at the end of the season with Castle Coombe but I want to give a quick plug to my colleagues at Keep Classic because we've started talking to them and I think there's a possibility that we may be able to run with them in the future whilst retaining the traditional um, uh, events as well and uh, you know it's fantastic seeing seeing these cars and you know the only pleasure I get out of them is seeing the, the grids uh, appear on track and uh, if we can get you know 25 to 30 of those out it's really good and we've got a tremendous variety of cars that appear on track often many marks almost as many marks as there are cars on the on the uh, grid so yes I've, I've been involved with that now for 10 years and um, as long as I'm still able to I'll probably continue to do that. Uh, and actually, it's caught, brought out some very interesting cars as well. I mean, I remember doing a piece on the, the Nash Healy that finished third at Le Mans in 1952 behind the two Mercedes, yes. uh, a piece on the, uh, a sort of Bristol recreation. Um, so you've been able to get some sort of one-offs or rare cars out as well, haven't you? We because have. Because you know, um, quite relaxed. And uh, at the meeting we shared with the keep uh, over the weekend, uh, Christopher Mann, um, who's supported us uh, for a long time, um, brought his uh, Alfa Romeo Disco Volante, the open version, um, uh, to the meeting, and he regularly brings it to our meetings, and he does so by driving it to the circuit and home again. I don't know many sports racing cars that would uh, be brought to the circuit these days on the roads and, and driven home again, so brilliant stuff. We've also had a couple of DB3Ss race with us in the past, although I think their value is now such that you know, um, drivers don't want to risk them uh, unless it's at top events. Um, and of course, we've, we've, we've had a number of quite um, interesting people drive with us, not least, of course, is Jonathan Abacassis, a name who his, historians will recognise, um, the grandson of uh, George, and um, he has, you know, improved no end. He, he races with both us and to keep classic. And he's won quite a few races, um, uh, getting quicker. And we do we do have some interesting cars and interesting drivers with us. Um, John Harper's another one who some may remember raced the Ferrari bread van uh, back in the. I'm sure he probably wouldn't want me to say really, but I'm guessing it's what early '80s. And he comes out now occasionally and co-drives uh, Jaguar C-Type. Um, so yes. Well, you know, it's, I think it's something we try and keep alive uh, whilst recognising that we cannot restrict the rules purely to cars as they were manufactured because, for a start, they wouldn't be allowed to run. Yeah, and that's, of course, the sort of effort that means club racing can can thrive and, and actually anyone who sort of laments uh, too many single-make uh, categories uh, which have their place there are pl plenty of strengths about those as well but if you want to see different shapes and listen to different sounds then a club event in particularly some historic uh, events such as the Fiskar races are uh, definitely worth taking a look because every other car past you is is different and unless you're a real anorak half of them require a bit of looking up as well or speaking to someone like like dad to tell you uh, what they are uh, giving away too many secrets there but uh, um yeah, let's let's move. We'll just this next Pete will keep brief because I think uh, to call them motorsport careers is very generous. Um, but you did a little bit of competition in sprints and hill climbs. What in the mid seventies and then late eighties? Well, 80s? yeah. I mean, it's so insignificant. I'm not really sure it's worth mentioning. But yes, I did a few hill climbs in uh, a Reliance Sabre Six uh, in the mid seventies um, until the poor old thing got worn out. And then later on, when you were beginning to grow up, I did do a couple more sprints uh, with a, a Genetta G15 and a Sabre Six, but a different. Uh, different Sabre 6 but that's really the sum total of my effort so I'm not really sure that's something we can dwell upon for too long no no fair enough I mean the two main memories I've got from the obviously uh, the, the late 80s one there the G15 and the Sabre was I think I remember going on the motorway in the Sabre 6 somewhere used it as a road car and it was one of the loudest cars I've ever sat in oh my god well it was uh, in almost raced it wasn't quite it was it, you know it wasn't full spec but yes it was pretty loud yeah and the other one was a goodwood sprint 
where you went you went off I think I was with a, a work colleague of yours or a friend yeah, or something um, uh, and you went off and, di- and didn't come back and there were red flags and everyone else came back and you didn't so that was yeah, slightly petrifying I, I disgraced myself because the uh, the oil pressure pipe one of the oil pipes on the uh, Genetta G15 which had a, a, a 1040 imp engine well more or less a climax engine really wasn't it but blew off the line and I didn't immediately spot the drop in oil pressure so there was a big trail from the start line right up to uh, the first corner at Madwick Madwick yeah and uh, it took a hell of a lot of time to clear up and of course I would sort of drifted off the circuit and and ran into a safe place so I would have been out of sight of most most people at that stage and uh, yes I'm sorry that uh, I might have caused some consternation but um yeah <laughs> not a good memory really although i seem to remember i was also driving my saber six at that meeting and i think i won my class but then i think there was only a couple of us in it so um yeah mixed fortunes at that particular meeting well i can sort of from uh, personal experience and and, and watching that uh, can confirm that that dad's a better uh, better driver on track than i am my um the family uh, the family uh, sort of um, relationship with Ginetta not ideal because my first race outing was in a G20. Martin Faffer owned Ginetta at the time before Lawrence Tomlinson bought it. Um, rang me after my first week at Autosport and said, we like that piece you wrote. Um, do you want to come and do a, a race with us? And I was very green and naive and thought, yeah, that sounds cool. And he uh, got me through my arse test and passed that quite easily. Um, and uh, then went to the first race. And everyone who'd not done any racing said, what an easy car the Ginetta was to drive and you'll, you'll be fine. Uh, stupidly didn't speak at that point, this is how naive I was. I didn't actually speak to anyone in the office who had driven a racing car. Ed Straw would have been able to put me straight in about 30 seconds, I think. So I went along with no testing, predictably was slowest um, and had several moments. Um, but I, I got gradually faster, uh, right up to the point uh, where I decided to uh, hit the throttle a bit too early, a bit too, bit too much out of Druids at Brands Hatch. Uh, and put the car in the wall but um, someone was helpfully there to take a picture yes unfortunately or fortunately however you look at it I was actually there with a camera and uh, took a picture of it but um, we did look into these cars later and you need to be a really good experience to drive driver to get these the best out of these cars and or at least you did then and they were actually quite difficult and uh, clearly it wasn't the right uh, car to go racing in when you first is with your first time out actually i'd like to just return to the Ginetta 15 because um uh you were actually almost born in that car because um your mother was taken to hospital um about to give birth to you in it in the passenger seat of that g15 which is was already modified at that time but we used it on the road so um, you do have a, a bit of an affinity whether you like it or not Ginetta's <laughs> no fair enough um, and uh, actually that, that Ginetta Browns race so yeah that, that picture that, that Dad took did appear in the magazine so if you've got a, an issue of the mag I think it's probably late April early May 2006 there's a picture of me climbing out of a wreck Ginetta although I fared better than my teammate it was Shane Lynch who was a much better driver than me uh, and uh, he had a wheel bearing failure to turn off the corner after me which put him in the wall and hospital so I'm afraid the team had two broken cars and only one well I was going to say driver one person who sat in the car and turned the steering wheel after uh, after qualifying but um, I did get out and do the race a much it wasn't it was it was much better when I drove the, the Dunlop Sport Max Sayat a year yeah, later and, and you would uh, you were um, trained properly during the course of the weekend. You had some really good guidance, and uh, you learnt from uh, from that. And uh, you had a couple of good results. I seem to remember. Yeah, it was uh, Adrian Miller, I think it was, that gave me the gave me some tuition. It just it just proved. I mean, anyone who's been doing club racing will know this, but uh, testing um, is just absolutely crucial, especially if you've got the experience. Now, if you've got a lot of experience and you're really good, then you can jump into anything and be quick. But if you're building up the experience, you need to do some driving. So, I did a day of testing at Snetterton, and I started off ten seconds off the pace, and by the end of the day. Um, I was on it and I was actually able to take class pole the following day although I have to say I think the car was the best car in the class so I think I, I did have a bit of a technical advantage but had I qualified without any testing I'd have been 10 seconds off the pace and looked like a fool so that was a that was quite a big uh, big lesson that I've sort of tried to take through to when I'm talking to young up-and-coming drivers yeah, I think that probably made up for your uh, uh, unfortunate uh, occurrence at uh, Brands in the Ginetta really I think that showed that you could apply yourself and with the right you know 
people around you and training you would have been okay yeah it was uh, it was entertaining the first race i was taken off by simon shaw coming down to the s's um who as soon as he realized i was a journalist was very apologetic and came grab me to say sorry before we got as far as race control uh i mean it was it was his fault he understeered into me but um it was nice to not have to have the argument and then the next race had a fantastic battle the, it was class b there were three class a cars and they cleared off they were gone by the end of the first lap and i had a battle with two mg well it's one one mg uh, Simon dropped off the back because he's clear I was handling appallingly uh, and then uh, it was Chloe Edwards of the f- famous Edwards family c- c- came through to catch the back of us and she looked quite aggressive um, the guy whose name I sadly I can't remember who I was battling with but he was very fair even though I was sort of in his way really um, he didn't fire me off but Chloe looked rather more aggressive so I was quite pleased to see her disappearing off the road uh, backwards when I was heading towards the bomb hole uh, but unfortunately in the end I think I what did I do I think I missed a gear and he got me in the end so I finished fourth overall I uh, did win the class because he wasn't mm. registered for the class but and he had very kind things to say yeah about it was, it was a good and so I was, it was all good it was and I was interviewed by Matt James afterwards <laughs> who because we knew uh, that's the motorsport the current motorsport news editor long term British touring car correspondent absolutely top guy uh, and he, we, we knew each other already and he just came up to me and went go on then what happened and he just let me talk for five minutes and used absolutely none of it which I'm sure he was very amused to anyway that's uh, enough of that um, but we're going to finish on some on, a, on some fun bits um, so recently we've done a sort of couple of things in the magazine um, just kind of a, a, a sort of a straw poll if you like of, of the staff which I wanted to run, run by you so one was if you could go back to one moment in motorsport history what would it be to watch to, to watch one particular moment in motorsport history I, while you think about it I'll just talk about my pick so uh, oh no do you want to say now I don't have a problem with this I think it would have to be Nürburgring late 50s Moss DBR1 phenomenal stuff um, I think Tony Brooks had won in 57 to show what a good car this was and actually Brooks was a great driver too um, but Sterling the following two years uh, won it um, okay he was sharing the drive but I think it would be fair to say he did the lion's share on both occasions and he put it put one over the uh, Ferraris on uh, two years running um, to win uh, in the DBR1 300 and probably since it was championship year or the year they won the championship I'd probably go for 59 so uh, yeah that I think that'd be one I'd probably want to go back to if I had the Opportunity. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty cool. And that was a very important race, of course, because uh, David Brown, who owned Aston Martin, didn't even intend to go. And it was Moss that basically went to him and said, well, I reckon the DBR1 could be quite handy around there. So he persuaded to let him have a car. Um, I think he paid expenses. I think Moss paid the expenses as well. He certainly offered uh, to pay his expenses. Uh, um, but then I think he also said, well, I, if I pay the expenses and I win, then I keep all the uh, winnings, which seemed a fair deal to me. Yeah, that's fair. Sterling was very good and hot on uh, on that sort of on that sort of thing. Not in a grabby way, but just in a knowing his worth. And he did earn the money because obviously he was, he was running away with the race. Um, Jack Fairman took the car over, put the car in the ditch, uh, fortunately, he was quite a large man and strong enough to actually basically lift the car out of it. Sterling had already changed into civvies when uh, Fairman brought the car in. Moss changed changed back, got into the car and started, a, I think, probably one of the greatest comeback drives in motorsport history to steal the win. Of course, Aston Martin then went and won Le Mans, which was David Brown's in sort of main aim all along. Again, Moss played a part by goading the Ferraris early in the race. They blew up and uh, left Aston to finish 1-2. And because of the Nürburgring result, that meant that they went to good with the chance of the championship. Yeah, I'd just like to go back to that race at Nürburgring, though. And to be fair to Jack Fairman, who I think was actually a pretty safe pair of hands, um, not the quickest, but I think he'd been put off by a slower driver. And the fact that he had the strength uh, and perseverance to drag that car out of the ditch, I think, is pretty fantastic as well so you know he had his share in that win I think yeah no that's that's entirely that's entirely fair um, and then uh, and then of course for the for the Goodwood finale uh, Ferrari, Porsche or Aston could win the championship and uh, Aston put their two number one drivers Moss and Roy Salvadori in the lead car and they were duly delivering uh, until they managed to set the car on fire in the pits which actually wasn't the first time an Aston Martin had caught fire at Goodwood um, and they st- stuck Moss in the in the Carroll Shelby car, 
and uh, he charged through to uh, another victory. So really, at least two of those three victories were almost directly result of Sterling Moss. But um, Aston Martin's greatest motorsport moment probably, wasn't it? 59? You'd have to say so, winning the World Championship, yeah. Um, of course, I've also got a, a, quite a strong feeling about Salvadori winning 63 in the 214 at uh, the Copper. Copper into Euro. Into Euro, uh, at, Monza. Uh, Monza. Um, when he beat um, Parks, Mike Parks in the GTO, uh, who was no slouch himself, and that must have been a pretty great thing to see. But of course, you know, another Aston win, um, probably the only really decent win uh, for the 214, but again, would have been good to see. And probably the last great, I think the last major international Aston Martin victory until the DBR9 rocked up at Sebring on its debut in 2005 and won. And then, of course, won outright the TT at Silverstone, which we were also at. Uh, we were. And the wrong Aston Martin won, if I remember rightly, but we didn't really care too much. <laughs> uh, see, we, I went, before I worked for Sport, of course, I could be subjective. Now I have to be more, more objective about these things. But my, my memory, just in, in case anyone cares, or my moment I'd go back to, it's probably a, a sort of a toss-up between going back to 1937 to watch the W125 versus the Auto Unions, uh, although I think that any individual race probably weren't that close. But the performance I probably would go back to as a huge fan of the Porsche 917, I would happily go and get completely and utterly soaked at Brands Hatch 1970 when he was a lap behind and won the race by five laps. Uh, an incredible performance. And some of the footage of that, the way he dances the car on the edge, uh, him and Vic Elford both starred that day. I've been fortunate enough to uh, to interview Vic on a couple of occasions. Incredible memory he has. Um, but that would probably be the event I'd go back to. Yes, I think uh, that would be another one certainly on my list. And the irony of it is that I was probably at an ordinary club event at, at, at that uh, point. And my best friend, who I, who I, uh, Philip Smith, who I know now, he actually was there and he described it all to me. So... Yeah, that was a pretty amazing race. I think, who was it, did you say? Said, uh, said uh, can someone tell... Uh, Chris Amon, Chris Amon. Yeah, can someone tell um, Pedro that it's raining or something? Yeah, like, yeah. Which I he, think, you know, I know it's, you know, everyone knows his story probably, but I, it's worth repeating. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually doing a lot of research uh, on Pedro Rodriguez at the moment, just so, just so happens. I would have picked this race anyway, but because uh, it's 50 years since he was killed at the Norris Ring uh, next month, so we do a piece uh, on allsport.com and in Allsport magazine on that. And um, yeah, the top 10 drives of his, which uh, I'll be, I'm working on, probably not giving too much away to say that the Brands Hatch race will appear quite <laughs> quite high on that uh, on that, on that so. list. Um, now, the other, the other fun bit that we did recently was your Dream Motorsport Combo. Um, now I picked uh, so it was pick a track pick a car pick a driver from any uh, era so you could mash them all together it doesn't have to be around the time so I picked Nigel Mansell 1991 spec Silverstone in the Porsche 91730 Can-Am car with 1500 brake horsepower and qualifying trim because uh, I reckon Mansell well first of all Mansell at the old Silverstone I think I think anyone's, uh, whether it be Senna, Schumacher, or even Lewis Hamilton, would have trouble living with Nigel on on peak form around there. And also, you had to be a pretty brave, brave son of a gun, I think, to get the best out of an R one seven thirty. And I think Nigel at Silverstone in that would be unbelievable to watch. So that was my pick. Can you think of a, a combination that uh, that didn't happen that 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 should have should have done or, or would have been nice to see? I can't immediately bring something to mind. I'm sure if I was given more time, I would come up with several, but at the moment I'm struggling. Um, I suppose uh, Moss with the BRM V16, if that wretched thing had been uh, reliable, somewhere like Goodwood, would, although of course I think that actually happened, didn't it? But um, that that must have been, would have been a great combination, but of course he was pretty critical of that car, wasn't he? So... I'm really struggling to think at the moment of a, a, a combination. I can, at a much lesser level, I can think of one which I, I wish I had been there, although I did see some of it on the television. But um, most of your listeners probably laugh at this, but I think uh, Simon Hadfield at the uh, nine, uh, 2013 RAC TT 
uh, race at uh, um, Goodwood Revival in extraordinary conditions and uh, in a car which really wasn't capable of winning this race normally um, somehow managed to do uh, take over from Wolfgang Friedrichs who owned that car the 212 prototype and managed to take it through to a win so that for me was a really good combination but not obviously at the level we're, we're talking about now but yeah, I think that was a good combination. Well, and actually, funny enough, I did a piece. Uh, well, I, Mark, I think Mark's part actually wrote most of it in the end. But we we sort of did a piece um, when the Goodwood Revival was twenty years old. Goodwood has now been active longer as a historic race venue than it was as a contemporary one, which is pretty amazing. And uh, we asked a number of top drivers um, involved with with it over the years to pick their highlight. The only race that came up more than once was that race. Simon Hadfield picked it, which is fair enough. But quite amazingly, Anthony Reid picked it as well. And he was on the receiving end of Simon's drive in the wet that day and finished second. So I think that tells you something when the guy that finished second and was on to win it picks it. Uh, it was quite remarkable. My other Goodwood revival memory is, uh, to go complete the circle, is, uh, of course, watching Moss in the 250F Maserati finish fourth in oh, 1999. Yes. And that, I think, was in the rain too, wasn't it? It was. Certainly damp, um, and he started reasonably well back. 16th, I think it was. And I think, you know, you'd have to say that Moss was well past his best long before that, but he he just found he had the car that he loved and he was on a track that he loved in conditions that he could exploit his incredible skill and yes he drove beautifully that day um sadly i never got to see him really in the heyday but uh, yeah that was um turning the clock back i feel for many of those who watched it that was a good drive yes yeah his sort of finesse really uh, sort of came through that day the other thing i remember about that day was grant williams in the Mark II Jaguar, yeah. coming past, we were we were we were watching between Madwick and the uh, the King after that, the name of which is escaping me, the Fordwater, uh, and he it felt like he was sideways halfway down towards Fordwater. Yeah. He did eventually crash twice, actually. He, he crashed. Did. He did, and uh, I mean uh, the wily old fox, the dear and late Jerry Marshall was sort of watching this from afar in second place, relatively st- staying clear of this. Uh, and probably knew that he was going to win the race since uh, the Jaguar was never going to stay on the track at those angles for the whole duration of the race. But it was certainly spectacular to watch and great fun, provided you could see it through all this sea of umbrellas that insisted on erecting themselves at that corner. Yes, my views on umbrellas at race circuits are well documented and I've been criticised for because some people don't like getting wet, but uh, we probably won't won't go too far uh, down. <laughs> well... Uh, just, a, just another event we went to was an old Bentley Drivers Club racing at Donington. That's probably the closest I've ever come to thinking, are we mad? Yep. Because it was, yeah, Donington Park, standing at the crane occurs, watching these pre-war Bentleys come past, and you could look at Donington, you can look all the way down the hill, down the crane occurs, down to the old hairpin, all the way uh, up to under the bridge, and the uh, number of other spectators there in all that vista was a round number. <laughs> yeah, it was a very round number. Uh, they had been there at the start of the race, but uh, halfway through, and it, conditions got worse and worse, and we just looked round, and there's absolutely no one else in sight. But, you know, you're enthusiastic. You don't worry about a bit of water, do you? No, I must admit, I've never been too worried about, uh, too worried about getting wet. Although it is annoying if you get a notepad wet. I've got a special NASA pen somewhere actually that works in the wet. It's amazing. <laughs> um, the classic cliche of well, why don't you use a pencil? We won't. We won't go into that. Actually, doesn't work very well. But um, no. I really feel like we are going down a bit of a rabbit hole there. So yeah, um, sorry about that. We we could talk for hours and probably will after we we turn off. Um, but I think probably the listeners will have, will have had enough. Certainly of my voice by now. So I'd just like to thank. My dad, John Turner, for joining us and sharing some of his anecdotes. I hope it wasn't too difficult being on. He was a little bit uh, unsure about uh, coming on, but um, I think we've we've had a reasonably good... uh a reasonably good chat and thank you to, to the listeners I hope this was something a bit different and, and some interesting bits and perhaps sparked some uh, some memories of your own so please do get in touch uh, uh, on social media or, or even uh, email me kevin.turnoutautosport.com if you want to keep up to date with uh, all the latest um, visit autosport.com and be sure to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine uh, out every Thursday well thank you again guys that's our podcast for today the very first Autosport dad pod Did you like it? Maybe we'll make more with the rest of the team. Hey, here's what you can see right now on Autosport Plus. 
a very special subscriber edition. If you want to read before the first race, what's our W Series correspondence? Megan White has written about champion Jamie Chadwick taking nothing for granted ahead of its return. You can check that out. Our man at F1, Alex Kalanorkas, writes about whether Red Bull can really win anywhere now that they've toppled Merck's stronghold. And Oriol Puigdemont on why Yamaha is about to risk losing Valentino Rossi. Well, we reckon it's the best motorsport writing out there. But judge for yourself. We're giving you half-price access because you're a podcast listener and you got all the way to the end of the podcast as well. So as a reward, new subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST, all one word. Do it during checkout and you save 50% off your first payment, whether your first payment's a month or a year. You can end up with some mega savings. How do you do it? Go to autosport.com slash plus. Then you click sign in at the top of the page. Then you use the promo code podcast. And whatever your first payment is, maybe even the first year, you get a massive 50% discount. Thank you so much for listening today. And we'll be back soon. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.